Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome on in to the Three Martini Lunch for Friday. Yes, it's finally here. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We got good, good, and fill-in-the-blank martinis for conservatives today. Let's start with good number one. And, Jim, we laugh a lot about the different Democrats that threw their hat into the ring for the 2020 Democratic nomination. There are so many of them that never really had a chance, but there aren't that many that never had a point. But Bill de Blasio fits that role. I think he just didn't want to be left out for some reason. But now he is out. He announced today on Morning Joe that uh, he's ending his presidential campaign. Getting out there, being able to hear people's concerns, address them with new ideas, has been an extraordinary experience. But I have to tell you at the same time, I, I feel like uh, I've contributed all I can to this primary election. And uh, it's clearly not my time, so I'm going to end my presidential campaign, uh, continue my work as mayor of New York City, and I'm going to keep speaking up for working people. Jim, he says he contributed all he could to this campaign. I'm not sure exactly what that was, but uh, what do you make of the fact that uh, the de Blasio era of this uh, 2020 cycle is over? I kept waiting for him to go on to say, uh, you know, look, I, I, I'm not being invited to the debates anymore, and I really enjoyed interrupting the moderators. <laughs> Uh, shouting, jumping, insulting the other candidates, trying to pick fights. Um, and that's just not happening for me. And honestly, no one will put a live groundhog in my hands again. Um, so without my opportunity to crush the, the spines of small animals, I, I just don't see any point in going on. Right before we started taping this podcast, I was finishing up a corner post that's kind of writing the obituary of the, uh, the de Blasio campaign. I really don't like this man. <laughs> and I, you know, it's, oh, you know, you know, Jim's a conservative and this guy's a progressive. Yeah, I think it does matter. I think if you look at the record of de Blasio and what he brought to the table and what he's done as mayor, I mean, let's observe. New York City is a very democratic city. It is a very progressive city. So as he took office, this is a guy who was, you know, volunteering in Nicaragua and supported the Sandinistas, uh, aide to David Dinkins, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, right? You know, I think it's safe to say there were a lot of people in New York City who wanted to see Bill de Blasio succeed. He, he did not. This was not, you know, a Trump-like situation where you go into office and half your constituents hate your guts already. You know, people there. And also you look at the number of people, the big media institutions that are based in New York City. They're all would have been very happy to write the story of, hey, Bill de Blasio is bringing New York City to better heights than ever. Um, that New York City is in a golden age. And look at this progressive who has managed to show that these ideas can serve, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, as they say about New York City. But they haven't written that story. And in fact, New York City has a lot of problems. Uh, as I lay out in this corner post, public housing, homeless students, uh, the bus system's the slowest in the country, school bus, the city's overpaying for poor performance, uh, obviously, we know Bill de Blasio has had a bad relationship with the police for a very long time. Interesting, worth noting, because I'm sure I've referred to this in past uh, discussions of de Blasio. For once, I can actually say, don't blame him for the subways. Blame Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, because the New York City subway system is primarily run by the state, not by the city. So for all the problems in New York City, actually, that's one that isn't really de Blasio's fault, but there's certainly lots of other big problems everywhere else. And there was always this, you know, usually when somebody decides to run for, for office, there's some variation of, I will do for America what I did for my state or for my city or for my district. You know, there's 
there's always some variation of my previous time in office is a preview of what I will do as president. And de Blasio, there was not a great deal of enthusiasm for that. I think there are a lot of New Yorkers who'd say, actually, no, the problems in the city have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. Then you throw in the stuff about his work ethic. Uh, the New York Post had reported that the month he announced he spent seven hours in the in the uh, in City Hall. Um, I didn't say a week. I didn't say a day. He spent an entire month. He spent seven hours in the office. Uh, he's kind of famous for rolling out of bed late, working out in the morning. Takes his SUV with his full security detail to work out. And for an environmentalist, that's kind of seen as you know people grumble about that. De Blasio was always got these big ideas. We're going to ban steel and glass from skyscrapers. <laughs> We're going to make the kids never eat meat on Mondays for the environment. We're going to eliminate gifted and talented programs. All these big ideas while the actual problems of the city were getting worse. And uh, The Onion depict on this as, as a theme of saying, picturing him in a bar in Iowa watching coverage of flooding the subways in New York and saying, boy, what a mess over there. Somebody over there should fix that. You know, <laughs> there was kind of this disconnect between de Blasio running away from his record and uh, – Again, I think this is, I think the city of New York has been poorly served by him. I think this is one of the reasons that he was at zero for a whole bunch of these campaigns. I don't think there was anybody clamoring for de Blasio campaign outside of his own family. Good riddance, Bill de Blasio. I can't wait till you're no longer mayor and somebody else can take a crack at this. Uh, yeah, I think it's usually a pretty good sign when you see these photos from the Iowa State Fair where the line for the funnel cakes is bigger than the crowd listening to Bill de Blasio speak. I mean, <laughs> well, funnel, I mean funnel cakes on, are the great. Line for funnel cake, you get funnel cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Goodbye, Bill de Blasio. We will not miss you. Let's go to our next uh, good martini here. And Beto is now fighting with Democrats. This is always a a lot of fun whenever the Democrats really start to duke it out. We're going to see more of this as we get closer to actual voting in the primaries. But uh, Beto's not fighting with another candidate for president. He's fighting with Chuck Schumer because Chuck Schumer was asked about, hey, what do you think about uh, Beto's idea of the mandatory buyback program? And Schumer says, I don't know of any other Democrat who agrees with Beto O'Rourke, which is not true, by the way, because Kamala Harris does and maybe Booker. Uh, I can't remember who the other one is. But Beto not taking that lying down. He was asked about Schumer's comments, and here's what he said. Chuck Schumer says nobody supports your idea. Ask Chuck Schumer what he's been able to get done. Um, We still don't have background checks. Um, Didn't have them when he was in the majority either. So, you know, um, the game that, that he's played... Um, the politics that, that he's pursued have um, given us absolutely nothing and have produced a situation where we lose nearly 40,000 of our fellow Americans every year. What he may not know, but what I hear loud and clear because I'm traveling the country, listening to my fellow Americans, is that the people are there. They just did a poll in Texas. 49% of Texans, the state of Texas, support a mandatory buyback. A little more than 30% oppose it. Yeah, I'd be a little interested in the exact wording on that poll in Texas. But, uh, Jim, what do you make of Beto uh, turning into the I'm the only one serious on this issue? I do read books by Democrats. And, and sometimes it's kind of interesting just to see how they see the world, how they see each other, um, what they learn from past campaigns. And you, you can learn something interesting. And one of my favorites was by Joe Trippi. I think the title was... The revolution will not be televised. He was Howard Dean's campaign manager in 2004. People probably remember, you know, Howard Dean's campaign taken off like a rocket for a good chunk of 2003. I'm from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And it implodes on the night of the Iowa caucuses with his crazy screaming of the names of states and stuff. <laughs> but there was a section in Joe Trippi's book where he said that, you know, the Dean's campaign of 2004 was all about 
He tried to tell Howard Dean, don't use the words I and me. Try to use the word you as much as possible and try to use the word we as much as possible. Because you know, the idea is this campaign is about you, this campaign is about what we are gonna to do together, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, you make people feel like they're, they're buying into something, uh, that they're active participants in a campaign. But also he, kinda, he took some shots at Kerry, and this book came out after the 2004 election. But he said, you know, when you look at John Kerry, in every single campaign ad, in every single speech, when Kerry was talking, Joe Trippi always heard, aren't I terrific? Aren't I just fabulous? Bask in the wonderfulness that is me. You know, those of us who are not fans of John Kerry will find this hilarious and nod and say, yes, yes, I do hear that same thing, no matter what the words are actually coming out of his mouth. But there is kind of this certain... You could argue you need a certain level of narcissism to want to run for office. You have to have a high self-regard. You have to believe that uh, you are the one who can do this a great thing. This is probably kind of an interesting warning lesson in uh, Beto O'Rourke's 2018 Senate campaign. Because think about it, this guy, you know, blew up uh, as, a, you know, everybody was sending correspondence out there, writing these glowing national profiles. But he'd been in the House since 2012. You hadn't heard anything about him, right? He'd, he'd been in the House for six years, and most people had no idea who he was. And so the question is, why? Okay, he's been there. Um, there's not been any, you know, significant O'Rourke bipartisan bill to do X, Y, and Z or something. And if you looked at that coverage, occasionally there'd be some mention. He generally got along well enough with the rest of the Texas delegation. Um, he and Will Hurd went on some sort of... Uh, Instagrammed uh, road trip between their two districts. This was not a guy who had built extraordinary relationships with his other lawmakers and had really become the guy who could pull together the votes and arm twists and charm people. And really, he was no LBJ, shall we say, when it came to putting together legislative coalitions. Fast forward to 2019, September. O'Rourke's campaign is in trouble. Uh, it's pretty clear it's not going anywhere. It's pretty clear that any hope he had for dropping down to the Senate and running the Senate race was not looking great. Um, so now you can kind of see he's, he's a little bit of a kamikaze here. He might as well take some shot. You know, first of all, he's taken a position on gun control that ruins it for every other moderate Democrat who's been insisting for decades, we're not going to take your guns, you paranoid lunatics. Um, and now Chuck Schumer had said, I don't know anybody who agrees to that position. Um, I mean, I guess he doesn't talk to Kamala Harris or Cory Booker <laughs> since, uh, Harris and Booker said they were on board with, uh, with Beto's position, but you know. Look, the Senate Majority Leader takes a shot at you, and that's the we all can tell the subtext of that Chuck Schumer position. Beto, ixnay on the omphisque. Um, <laughs> this is not a position that's going to play well for a whole bunch of our folks. You're going in a direction the rest of the party can't go. Beto just turns the guns on him, so to speak, rhetorically and metaphorically. Emphasize, please, nobody take a shot at uh, at uh, Chuck Schumer today, and that applies to Beto O'Rourke too. Look, this is what desperate campaigns do. This is what desperate candidates do. And I think it, uh, this is, you know, kind of an immolation, you know, but by the time all is said and done, not only will Beto O'Rourke not have the president's, the Democratic nomination, not only will he not have the option of running for any place in Texas other than maybe mayor of Austin, um, I think he will have alienated a whole bunch of Democrats in this process. And I think that's what happens when you have this aren't I terrific uh, mentality as sort of your North Star. It really is amazing because he tried to build himself up as kind of a moderate when he was in the House. That's why uh, everybody thought he had a shot, at least, at being competitive with Ted Cruz. And he was competitive. And then he became the darling. So he tried to parlay that into a presidential run. But if you're going to run for president for the Democrats, you got to go hard left. And now he thinks going the hardest left is, is the way to get it done. So, yeah, he's 
he's mortgaged his future, at least in Texas politics. I'm sure he'll get a nice gig on CNN or MSNBC somewhere along the line. But not if he keeps uh, hating on everybody else in the party. You might need to be a little bit careful if he's still hoping to cash in on this. The other thing just I'm going to throw out here, you know, it's really been interesting. Biden is the de facto centrist of this Democratic field. You and I have discussed that he's not really that centrist. He just looks more centrist compared to where everybody else <laughs> sure. is. And maybe you could argue Amy Klobuchar is kind of one of the centrist ones. Booker doesn't go quite as far as, as you know, but nobody's really say. I mean, there, there are very few who are in the Steve Bullock. I'm here for the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. I'm here <laughs> for the centrist wing. Anybody who's going to be really explicitly that. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what's going to happen in 2020. Uh, maybe the Democrats win. In fact, you'd probably look and say, okay, they, you know, Trump's always been a very divisive guy. Maybe there's a 50-50 shot of that. But if Trump wins, besides the fact that a whole bunch of people are going to heads explode and people are going to lose their mind and all that kind of stuff, like you might think that hmm, maybe centrist, if, if Democrats lose to Trump two cycles in a row, maybe Democratic centrism makes a comeback. Maybe the, you know, the, the return to the Democratic leadership committee to say, hey, guys, does this remind you of Carter and Mondale and Dukakis? Do you feel like you can't believe how we keep losing to these guys? Maybe it's time to tack to the center again. And there's nobody who seems to want to say, hey, you know, let's go in that direction. Uh, or at least nobody of significance, it seems, so far in this, this election cycle. Yeah, well, maybe that'll work out well for Republicans. Might be their best shot at actually getting getting what they want. Time for our fill-in-the-blank martini now here, Jim. And uh, yesterday, our, our bad martini was – actually, no, what was it? It was a crazy martini yesterday, actually, uh, because we didn't know any of the details yet. And the media uh, was hyperventilating. And that was the um, the whistleblower in the office of the director of national intelligence. And it was a July 25th phone call with President Trump and some other world leader where Trump made a promise that was really disturbing – and supposedly officials in the office of the DNI refused to give the details to Congress, which, of course, now has congressional Democrats fuming. And we're getting more details on this. It, would, it appears that the, the president was speaking with the president of Ukraine. We still don't know the exact details or what the exact promise was. But Trump's buddy, the former mayor of uh, New York City, Trump's attorney, actually, Rudy Giuliani, went on the Chris Cuomo program on CNN last night. And uh, let's just say... Uh, folks are still scratching their head a little bit from that. But uh, here's part of that exchange. Did you t- ask the Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? No, actually, I didn't. I asked the Ukraine to investigate the allegations that there was interference in the election of 2016 by the Ukrainians for the benefit of Hillary Clinton, for which there already is a court finding. You never asked anything about Hunter Biden. You never asked anything about Joe Biden. The only thing I asked about Joe Biden is to get to the bottom of how it was that Lutsenko, who was appointed, right. dismissed the case against Antac. So you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden? Of course I did. You just said you didn't. No, I didn't ask him to look into Joe Biden. I asked him to look into the allegations that related to my client, which tangentially involved Joe Biden in a massive bribery scheme. Rudy. Okay, so he did and he didn't. So that's part one. And so... Then he mentioned the massive bribery scheme. So here's Rudy talking about that. Joe Biden offered him a $1.2 billion, $1. billion loan guarantee in return for him firing a prosecutor. That and is a you have proof of- that it was a quid pro quo situation and you can show it. Yeah. You know what the proof is? Joe Biden, 2018, January, in front of the Council on Foreign Relations, saying the whole thing. He, he said, said, I'm going to give you this money if you get rid of this prosecutor. 100%. Exactly. Send me the Go transcript. Go listen to it and apologize to me. Go listen to it. He said exactly that. Okay, here's Joe Biden, January 2018, Council on Foreign Relations, talking about loan guarantees in the Ukraine. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, 
and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Well, son of a bitch, <laughs> got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid. So, Jim, you've been writing about this. What do you think? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. A lot of what Giuliani said was accurate. Um, if I were him, I'd try to avoid saying I didn't do it, and then I did do it, like in a 30-second span. That, uh, <laughs> that, that muddies the water, shall we say. Uh, let's, go, let's take this step by step. The first part about Trump. Yeah, I think it seems reasonable to assume that whatever Trump said to Ukraine probably echoes the sorts of things Rudy Giuliani was saying to the Ukrainian government. And a lot of this is going to depend on the wording. You know, that basically, if this is Trump being Trump, and in today's jolt, I go through all the, you know, Trump has called for an investigation of uh, Obama and his book deal and Obama and Netflix and an investigation into Google and investigation to Saturday Night Live. Uh, he wants the Federal Communications Commission and Federal uh, uh, Elections Commission to see if they're electioneering. Trump calls for investigations into anybody he doesn't like. Now, people could say, is this a bad thing for the president of the United States to do this because it could be construed as an order to law enforcement? Yeah, Trump should not do this. Trump also has been doing this for the entirety of his presidency. Also, it's worth noting, Trump says, this should be investigated. You notice, you know, very rarely does anybody bother to investigate. And then as much as people may not like, you know, you notice we don't hear a lot from Christopher Wray. We, We certainly have not heard that, you know, Trump said that the Obama-Netflix deal should be investigated, so Christopher Wray is opening up an investigation into that. Uh, the FBI agents raided the offices of Lorne Michaels this week to see if they had you know, done any kind of uh, inappropriate political electioneering. So I seem safe to assume this is what Trump is talking about. And if Trump is saying to a the prime minister and any leaders in Ukraine, hey, go investigate Biden's son. I hear there's some real dirt down there then that's that's you know, crossing a line. That's not the job of the American president. That's not the, and if he's got anything involving a quid pro quo, i.e. we're not going to get, we're not going to authorize those arms sales until you guys do this. Then we're really out of a gray area and into a much darker area. On the other hand, it's very easy to imagine Trump saying things like, oh, you know, Biden's son's a real crook. Everybody knows that everybody's sad. I'm hearing it. Are you hearing it? You know, um, this is why you guys should look at this guy, nail him to the wall. He's, you know, typical Trump stuff. I don't think that's a crime. Uh, it's not necessarily a good idea, but I don't think it's a crime. I don't think this is the sort of thing you should be, uh, you know, talking impeachment over. Now, as for Hunter Biden and all this stuff, there are a couple of different issues here, but it's worth noting. Hunter Biden worked for a bank, uh, MBNA, a very, you know, large bank based in Delaware for a whole bunch of years. He was a vice president at 28. And oh, by the way, you know, Biden was a senator, and, uh, but that had nothing to do with the fact that he was a senator from Delaware. There's nothing to do with the fact that Hunter Biden was named as a vice president back then. But anyway, um, Hunter Biden has been connected to a lot of hedge fund firms, consulting firms, law firms, a lobbying firm that he insisted he never did any lobbying for, Um, you know, stuff that is stuff. Again, it's not illegal, um, but kind of gets into a gray area. Uh, Certainly what you would characterize as the, the appearance of a conflict of interest, even if nobody has proven a direct conflict of interest. 
So Hunter Biden joins the board of directors for Burisma Holdings, which is the largest natural gas company in Ukraine. And here's where it gets, well, you heard that audio of, of Biden talking about the, the prosecutor. So by the way, when Biden, Hunter Biden is doing this, uh, Hunter, uh, Vice President Biden said, my son's dealings, we never talk about his clients. We never talk about what he's working on. Uh, he's never lobbied me. He's never pressured me to make any change, any U.S. policy for any, any of his clients. Um, and, you know, nobody's proven anything uh, to contradict that. It is also worth noting that the New Yorker did a big article about this earlier this year. There were people in the Obama administration who were uncomfortable with this arrangement. Who said, well, wait a second. He's got Chinese clients and, you know, Vice President Biden goes out there, meets with them and is uh, pushing for certain changes in U.S. policy towards China. That looks bad, even if it's not a quid pro quo. And what we have here in the Ukraine, well, here's the thing. There's a, you know, the prosecutor's named Viktor Shokin. Now, there are a whole bunch of people who will tell you Viktor Shokin was not a good guy. They had just gotten rid of that kind of pro-Putin regime. There's a, the, the big protests in the, in the square in Kiev. New government comes in and they ask Viktor Shokin to investigate. Viktor Shokin does not do a particularly good job of investigating the corruption of the preceding regime. However, for what it's worth, Viktor Shokin says he is going to investigate a company uh, which was basically the company that had appointed Hunter Biden to the board. And he says he was about to do that when all of a sudden Joe Biden came to town. And that's what he said to the Ukrainian government. You have to fire the state prosecutor. Now, you heard this, the audio from Biden there. Biden didn't say this guy had to go because he was investigating my son's company. They said this guy had to go because he was bad on corruption and uh, standing in the, op- in, the, in the way of other legal and judicial reforms that they wanted, the Obama administration wanted to see. His dismissal was approved by the Ukrainian parliament. Uh, most of the EU countries wanted this guy to go. You can pretty much, I think it's a pretty strong argument to say Shokin was, you know, there are reasons to say Shokin's got to go. However, you're really in a bed. It does not look good when you send the vice president to say this guy's got to go if, as it was reported by John Solomon in the Hill. Now, I've been fighting, all, everybody all day has just basically been saying, well, you just can't believe anything John Solomon says. And if they don't say that, they say, well, you can't believe anything Shokin says. This doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that is, um, you know, uh, an, an impenetrable mystery like the Loch Ness Monster or something like that. Either Shokin really was going to investigate Burisma Holdings for corruption and things like that, or he wasn't. Uh, if he did, then there probably was some sort of preparatory paperwork over that sort of thing. Uh, if he was, then there were probably other prosecutors or other staffers who could say, yes, I spoke with Shokin and we were going to launch a big investigation of Burisma. If none of that comes to pass, then maybe Shokin is indeed making all this up in order to try to cause trouble for the Bidens or something like that. Having said that, considering the circumstances, if you're the Obama administration, you probably, like, you could have sent anybody who did not have a son on the board of directors of a big Ukrainian natural gas company that may or may not be in the crosshairs of this particular prosecutor going to the Ukrainian government to say, hey, if you don't get rid of this guy, we're going to withhold $1 billion in loan guarantees. All right? I think at the very least, this emits an odor. And if it really is clear that Shokin was going to investigate this company, well, now it really smells to high heaven. And, you know, maybe this maybe this prosecutor really was a bad guy. Maybe the country really was better off with somebody else in that job. How the fact that Biden is telling this story indicates that he thinks he didn't do anything wrong. Um, Having said that, again, this is one more situation where it's the appearance of a conflict of interest. And, you know, maybe there's a legitimate thing to investigate here. Again, should the president of the United States be calling up the president of Ukraine saying, hey, you got to investigate this? No. But again, the great irony is this is a, this is a controversy about the, uh, of the idea of the, the president of the United States 
calling up the Ukrainian government saying, you have to make this change within the law enforcement of your country over a scandal that comes from the vice president going to the government of Ukraine and saying, if you want to get this loan guarantee, you have to make this change in the law enforcement of your own country. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, more, you know, time will tell. I, I, you know, a lot of people are telling me I'm barking up the wrong tree by relying on this John Solomon report. But at the very least, I don't think you can dismiss it out of hand. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, again, looking at the MB- MBNA stuff, the Biden family seems to just say, oh, look, we never talked about it. Trust us. And I don't know if that would that would fly for many of their circumstances in American politics of, look, yeah, my son's a lobbyist and I voted on legislation that, you know, his employer cared about. But, um, yeah, we, we didn't talk about it. There was no there was no quid pro quo. So nothing to worry about. Yeah, hopefully we can get some answers on both sides of this. Taking Hunter Biden at his word is not something I'm prepared to ever do, uh, <laughs> given the background. Yeah, no, yeah, that's his personal life, kicked out of the U.S. Naval Reserves for drugs, you know, I, you know, you hope he gets his life pulled together. It sounds like things are going better for him now, and God bless him. But again, it's going to take more than just "Don't worry, it's all on the up and up" from the Biden family for me to say, "Oh, okay, you know, nothing to see here. Move along." Wow, wow, Jim, excellent job digging into all that. I assume now that you've uh, got all the the facts in that you're going to uh, relax this afternoon by heading down to the climate strike uh, downtown because uh, all these kids are uh, basically ditching school to pretend they care about the climate. Some of them probably still do, and. It's the kids that are going to save us from climate change. So um, I just hope they don't mess up my commute. So if I go on a strike from the climate strike, <laughs> or you know what? I'm going to save carbon emissions by not going anywhere. How's that sound, Greg? <laughs> That's my way of protesting. It's as little effort as possible. There you, see, I'm reducing our carbon emissions already. <laughs> yes. And the more they shout, the more carbon dioxide they're emitting, too. So, I mean, it's just... Whisper, whisper protesters, whisper. <laughs> Jim, have a great weekend. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review, author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today. Have a great weekend and be back with us on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.